You don't mean to tell me there's anybody listening tonight, do you? With the Mets out there at Shea Stadium. Oh, come on. We could do almost anything. Would you believe it? The Mets are in first place in their division in the National League. Well, now... <laughs> I mean, you know, that's kind of... A minor miracle. Actually, if if you if you follow the uh, baseball world, that isn't really as much of a miracle as it seems. Uh, but the, we must remember, friends, there are two divisions in the National League now, and that makes a big difference. However, uh, oh yeah, I'm a killjoy, but it's true. <laughs> I mean, and uh, it makes a big difference. And there's a lot of pansies all of a sudden in that league. Like like, uh, did you see Montreal tonight? The Montreal Ball Club in the second game is playing like the Mets when there was a bad barometric set of conditions, when the Mets had just been called together from all the little leagues of America. <laughs> I mean, you know. <laughs> and, uh, of course, you know, the thing, the thing that fascinates me, if you don't mind this, you know, once in a while I like to indulge myself here because I'm a baseball cuckoo, and uh, I don't know what that shows, but I enjoy it. It's funny how people put value judgments on other people's enjoyment. Uh, oh, yeah, oh, they do. I'm going to immediately get thousands of letters from people. Mr. Shepard, a man of your intelligence, well, you should really be a Barbara Streisand fan, and so forth. You know, I, I don't know, you know. Uh, you dig Philip Roth, well, I dig uh, Rusty Staub. You can have your problems, uh, and I'll have mine. But uh, nevertheless, uh, one of the most fascinating developments of this, uh, this whole Met phenomena in the last three months is it, isn't it amazing how quickly all this jabberwocky that was coming out of deep thinkers like, uh, what's his name, Gross of the uh, Post, and Larry Merchant and all these guys, about baseball being dead. Uh, boy, there was more jabberwocky coming. What they really meant, you see, I think New York, this proves so conclusive. Now, all of a sudden, all you can, everywhere you go, you know, everybody talking about the Mets, and fantastic uproar, and... Uh, Gosh, guys are buying tickets for, you know, $100 <laughs> and all that stuff. And uh, the season yet has almost a month to go. And furthermore, they've been breaking all attendance records everywhere, all over. In Chicago, you know, maybe a lot of you don't know that the Cubs, for example, have just gone over a million and a half in Chicago uh, in attendance. And this is in a ballpark that is about, roughly, a little over half the size of Shea which surprises a lot of people, and no night games. They play nothing but day ball there. So that means they have to draw a lot of people every day. In the middle, like, say, Tuesday, playing Houston. <laughs> I mean, they got to draw. They'll draw a million and a half into that ballpark. Well, now, obviously, this is not a game that's dead. What it, what it really says is that New York believes that if New York isn't winning, it ain't working anymore. Uh, in short, uh, what what uh, the New York writers were saying wasn't that wasn't not that baseball is dead. They were simply saying that baseball is dead in New York. Now, that carried even further meant that New York wasn't winning. So hence, the New York fans not being fans at all. I've, I you don't find many fans in New York. You find guys that like winners. Um, this is this is what New York really is. The only plays they ever go to are plays that get unanimous rave reviews, and they all go. Uh, <laughs> in short, the winner is always admired and applauded in New York. Had the Jets, for example, wound up 34th place, there would not be major pieces on Joe Namath, no matter how well he throws, nor how kooky or groovy or whatever you might say his sideburns get. That winners 
are <laughs> that's what it's about in this city. That's it, man. And I think one of the reasons why so many people are bugged in New York is that in any contest, even in life, you know, when guys go down and get a job, if you've got a city that's based totally on winning, which I think New York is, you don't mind me carrying on here a little bit about the Mets and, and the winning. Now, this is not a talk about baseball. It's about New York psychology. Uh, when you have a town that is based largely on the concept of winning, there's no there's no other answer in a game. You either win or you lose, and if you lose, forget it. You're, you know, get out of town. Uh, you're not even deserving of being here. You're the object of ridicule, as a matter of fact. You notice how they ridicule the Yankees, and yet the Yankees have got a fair ball club. Uh, fair, that's what I said, not that fair, but they're ridiculed constantly in the press. Uh, the Mets were ridiculed incessantly for years, and they had a fair ball club. It's just that other teams in the league had better ball clubs. Well, that is unthinkable, you see, uh, uh, to a New York writer. Uh, he never concedes, say, for example, that Cleveland, will, and we're not going to say Cleveland here, but Minnesota, for example, happens to have a better club than, than the Yankees. That doesn't mean that the Yankees lost up. It means that Minnesota was swinging. Well, I even heard one, uh, one uh, writer last year say, well, what kind of a game is this when the two championship teams, one is from someplace called Minneapolis and another is from someplace called St. Louis? As if that, you know, that was ridiculous. You, you can't, you, this is not a real game if New York is not in it. And so the, 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 uh, the ego of New York is overweening. And so what it produces, I think, it's a sad thing, it produces people walking around in a town that puts such value on winners that they constantly feel cheated because they're losers. And this is a fact. Uh, this town, even though it has its share of winners, it has a fantastic collection of losers. One of the reasons so, I think this is so, is because New York attracts losers. Uh, you're less visible in New York. Whereas if you're a loser in Griffith, Indiana, oh boy. I mean, you know, there you are sitting down at the bowling alley, and every last person in town knows that you're a loser. Whereas in New York, you can go to cocktail parties and, and uh, buy yourself a nice set of threads and and uh, talk a groovy game, and uh, nobody knows the difference, you see. Except, of course, they never see the uh, the book that you're writing, or they never see the play that you're about to open in, and all the rest of it, see. But you, it's all it's all, it's all all uh, talk. And so, naturally, this town, whenever there's a winner, they go ape. Because winning is what it's about. And uh, losing is, uh, forget it, that's bad news. Now, uh, this produces other problems. <laughs> it, it, it really does. Even in personal life, you see, uh, uh, that, that uh, the term loser, I think, is a New York term. Uh, because a guy assumes he's a loser simply because he hasn't won. Well, that's a questionable assumption. Uh, because in any contest, there can only be one winner, even if there's 38 guys in the game. But that doesn't mean that 37 of them lost. What it does mean, really, is 37 didn't win, which is a very different, uh, a very different uh, context. But uh, this is a strange city. I, 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 the more I live in New York, the more I'm impressed by the, the tremendous uh, contradictions in this town, uh, which, are, which are, and I don't mean the obvious ones. I don't, I'm not talking about the obvious ones between poverty and... Because I don't think the contrast between poverty and wealth is anywhere near as 
as big in New York as it is in other places of the world, or even in other places in the country. That uh, that uh, I know guys that are making forty-two fifty a week, man. That uh, I mean, you you'd think that these guys are eating off the top of the hog. I mean, they got their pink caddy, you know, and they got their silk threads, and uh, you know they're playing it up big. Now, of course, the roof may fall in next June, but the the fact is that they're that they're uh, you know. Next June may not ever come, so this is New York. I don't think the contrast in that area, and they keep writing about it as though this is so, but I don't believe that. But what I think the contrast uh, between New York and other cities is really interesting. Uh, I spent this last weekend in Boston, for example. Now, Boston, uh, they had a they had a winner once. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, the Red Sox won once. Well, you know that the Red Sox... This year, even though they're you know they're struggling along there, the Red Sox are drawing more people than they than they really did uh, when they were winning. There, they you know tremendous crowds going out there because there's, you know, these people obviously are fans. Well, I can tell you this: that if next year the Jets lose eleven straight, Joe Namath will suddenly disappear from all the all the profiles, the movies, and all the rest of it. Uh, why? Well. Is he any better or worse? No. We lost. Forget it, man. I remember, uh, just it just seems like yesterday, when Y.A. Tittle could have been elected God in New York. In fact, there were certain nominations made. that, uh, <laughs> And, and uh, scratch the average New Yorker, and he thinks Y.A. Tittle is some kind of a succotash dish, you know, that they make in Mississippi someplace. You know, it's made with fried onions. But uh, uh, this is uh, this is New York. It's a, it's a wild town. It's uh, and this is why in New York you can't take anything seriously. If you take what you do seriously, that is uh, you're really in trouble. Uh, in any 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 context, I mean, you, you write a hit play, and two months later they don't even remember you wrote this hit play, and in fact they're booing you because you didn't write another one. And uh, so this this town, and and it's not the guys that are doing the booing generally are people who've never done any of it. Uh, because this is where the loser psychology gets its most virulent. In fact, a guy wrote me a letter the other day, and he says he went out to uh, to a ballpark. Uh, it was, I believe, Philadelphia. And he said that there was a guy sitting down in front of me. He says, you're driving me out of his bird. No, it was in, in Boston. He said there was, it was really getting on his nerves. There was some guy sitting in front of him about uh, five rows ahead of him. And he says, this guy was had a fantastic voice. And he was mercilessly riding the catcher of the Boston Red Sox. This guy was yelling. He was hollering every time the guy did anything. Even when he got a hit, you know, the catcher, boo, boo, you phony. Oh, you want to just stretch it out? You're a chicken, chicken. Should have been triple power. You know, he's yelling like mad. And he says, and he was getting a little bored. See, this guy was screaming like mad for about eight and a half innings. And then the guy got up to go to the john or something, and he saw that the boor was on crutches. And he says, this taught him a lot, all of a sudden, that moment. that here was a guy who, you know, <laughs> and, and it made him feel great, you know, to boo somebody who was really doing it. And now that was an obvious case. He was really wearing crutches, so you could see, you know, poor guy, there it is. But how many people have invisible crutches? Like no talent. Uh, <laughs> you know, which is one of the worst set of crutches to have. And so this town is loaded with uh, with uh, with the boors. You know that it that I'll tell you out of a I may get the uh, 
oh, it doesn't make any difference, the, the number. Let's say X hundred letters a week or more. And in New York City, the great rarity is somebody to send you a letter and simply say, I like what you're doing. Every letter has to have one line in it, like, uh, Oh, that show last Wednesday was pretty bad, and uh, uh, that thing you said Friday, that was for the birds. However, I've been listening for 19 years. In other words, he refuses to ever concede that somebody, and, and there, not one letter would, would, would ever concede that what I do, I do better than you would do. Uh, not one letter will ever concede uh, that... <laughs> that, that that I am a professional, I do what I do, and I do it better than most anybody else in the business, let's face it, and that, that, uh, that it is unique. Well, this is a hard thing for people in New York to concede. Difficult. Uh, because this is the town of the put-down. This is the town of the, 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 the Susan Sontag. This is the town of the, of the critic. And uh, what critic really means in New York is not critic, but blaster. Uh, that has nothing to do with criticism. <laughs> it really doesn't. And so uh, it's it's fascinating to see that uh, even even let's take the Times recently. Even in spite of the fact that the New York Mets are now leading the National League, what happened two weeks ago in the Times? They had a full blown article in the New York Times magazine section by an old buddy of mine, Leonard Coppett, reminding everybody about how rotten the Mets used to be. And being nostalgic over it, <laughs> which is the ultimate plate of the loser. The true loser is the guy who reminisces. He reminisces over great losses. In short, uh, nothing makes a loser mad matter than to attach himself to what he thinks is a loser. See, and then the loser goes on and wins the Nobel Prize. Well, after that, of course, the the loser then must rely on the good old days, which is the days when the other loser was losing. Those are the good old days. Of course, that, the, the New York syndrome, uh, it takes many forms, and I think one of the most interesting forms that it does take uh, is, a, is a firm belief that scratch any New Yorker and you scratch an infinitely talented human being. And uh, this, is, this is absolutely a belief, and not only a belief, it is, it's more than a belief, it is a fact. <laughs> scratch any New Yorker, and you have total talent. Now, you, uh, when you get a little closer to this, and you ask him, well, why is it that you're not doing any of this, Charlie? You know, I mean, you, you're sitting around making smart remarks, sitting on the curb and yelling, but the, what about it? He will then begin to tell you about a thing he calls euphemistically the breaks. And uh, his, his other great point is this. Ah, get out. You know, you know what that whole business, you know what shop is about? It's who you know. You gotta know somebody. That's why. Why? When I was a kid, I could tap dance, I could whistle, I could play the violin. You should see the songs I wrote. But you gotta know somebody. This is one of the great universal plaints, and uh, nobody ever concedes. Well, you know what my trouble is, Manny? No talent. I don't know how to do nothing. I fall down the stairs. I can't even drink beer without slobbering all over myself. No, no. This uh, you never get that. To, never, never. And so the Mets, of course, uh, the Mets were beloved for a while, and, and they, they will be even more beloved. You see, the Mets were lucky, great, fantastic luck. And uh, one thing that the Mets have been born in was tremendous luck. They were born at the time when there was a great, great sudden upsurge of losers. 
this was the day, uh, it was in 1962, this was the day when, when everybody considered himself a, a Holden Caulfield. Uh, the, the village voice, you know, the little, the, the little, uh, the little man striking out against the giants, the Goliaths. And, uh, this was a romantic concept in 1962, right? Well, now, in 1962, there was a Goliath. It was called the Yankees. And, uh, you know, I mean, uh, the Yankees were winning the pennants. They were still winning. You know, those are Yogi Berra, and they had Muscara, and that Cleet Boyer. And by the way, why did the Yankees ever trade him away? They had, <laughs> they've never explained that one. They had the Cleet Boyer, had the, you know, they were really swinging. Whitey Ford was winning them. And had the, they had the, uh, Elston Howard was batting three fifteen. I mean, you just it was a murderer's row there. That was a tough ball club. Well, along came the, the Mets. And what would the Mets have ever done? I say the most important character in the history of the Mets was Marv Throneberry. And I believe it. It was not Casey Stengel, because Casey had been around for years. Nobody would particularly love it. But, see, Casey Stengel, uh, th- th- no comic is any good unless he has his straight man. And his straight man was, was Marv Throneberry and Choo Choo Coleman. Uh, and uh, these two straight men made everything that, that, uh, that, uh, that Casey say sound fantastically funny. Casey would say, look at them amazing Mets! And sure enough, Marv Throneberry would catch a ball in his left ear and uh, <laughs> and therefore make Casey very funny. And so millions of people went out and dug the Mets because they were losers. Well, now, the most important thing to remember about the Mets, friend, they skipped the one unforgivable thing in New York. You see, New York will like a loser up to a point. If the loser's lovable, and, uh, you know... And and this is what we had for a while with the Mets. And then time went on. Well, now the Mets skipped the most important part of all, mediocrity. The Mets went from being losers to total winners. Well, New York loves winners, and I'll guarantee you this, there's a lot of people out of Chase Stadium tonight that were never out of Chase Stadium three years ago. The figures prove it. Where were they? Well, they were saying baseball's dead. <laughs> Those guys were waiting for, for, for the next giant season, not the jet season. They were waiting for Fran Tarkenton to get his arm on Liberty, see? Because the Giants were winners. That's, that's another crowd. See, that's the winner crowd. And uh, I, would say, I would say roughly by, uh, uh, you know, if the Mets continue to lead the league, and who knows, they'll be in the playoff, which they will not win. Uh, they, uh, that doesn't matter. Uh, that that by next year, by next year, the same crowd, you know, that same smug, wild Madison Avenue Sports Illustrated crowd, is going to be jostling to get season box seats out at the Mets ball games. The same guys, by the way, that nine, ten years ago had the season tickets at Yankee Stadium. Same crowd. Now I remember one sad night. I'll never forget it. I. Uh, I, uh, a friend of mine called me up one night, and it was uh, a few years ago, and he called me up and he said, listen, he said, I got some seats to something. He said, you want to go? I said, okay. I had nothing on that night. It was, a, it was a weekend. And so I went up to the polo grounds, and we went into the polo grounds. It's the first time I ever went to something that happened at night in the polo grounds where it was 
Well, I want to tell you this. You know how the polo grounds were. You could hardly find a place to park around there. Listen, I could have parked a Zeppelin there. I drove up. I said, what the hell? <laughs> what kind of a scene is this? And I drive up. No problem. You know, we get out. We walk on it. Walk into this place. Nobody there. See, we go up into the stands, and here is a huddled little band of people. I would say roughly, I, I mean, serious. I'm not exaggerating. I would say probably 500 people. And we were sitting there huddled together, this little crowd of people, in a whole ballpark with the lights on. Have you ever sat at night that, with 500 people in a ballpark? What were we watching? I'm going to ask you a question. It's a rhetorical question. What were we watching? Was it the Mets? No. Give me a call. Tell me, tell me one, and I want to, give me a call, and, and, uh, and I, I would like to know, if one of you guys know what I was, no, we know you know, Lee, well, you know all that stuff, so don't hold it up, you just thought, tell me what it was I was watching, give me a call here. And I'm going to ask you some other rhetorical questions about that. What was it? Let's see, I just wait, see, I'm pretty, the New Yorkers don't even remember. <laughs> That's a true New Yorker. What do you mean, what do you mean? <laughs> oh, it's it's a strange world we're living in. It's a, it's a winning world, and you know, I I a couple of weeks later, I went out, and I'm gonna uh, let's let's get right down to nitty gritty. I'm sitting having lunch with a writer for a top sports magazine, which is published in New York by name, Sports Illustrated, and that uh, we're sitting there, and I said, listen, why don't you help these guys out? I said, why don't you help these poor guys out? You know, I said, gee whiz, you know, they're really, really struggling. And uh, give them a hand. And here's his answer. Oh, he said, uh, what a, what, get out. He said, do you think we're going to waste space on that? That He says, I'll give you uh, two sem- two seasons from now. That, that uh, He said, they won't even be in existence. Why should we even write about them? It's ridiculous. <laughs> well, all right, did anybody call in and say... One guy, why don't you put him through to me? I want to talk to one guy who was out there, because then I became a great fan of this club. And every week, I would go out, see, I would go out there, and, and I noticed the crowd was getting littler. As the temperature went down, see, it got colder. <laughs> the crowd got smaller. And by the end of the season, when the temperature was like 15 degrees, there were maybe enough of us there that we could literally have played a, you know, reasonable game of poker. And uh, <laughs> a reasonable game, you know. I don't mean it would have been out of hand, either. Yeah. Hello. Yeah, hello there, man. You were watching the Titans, huh? That's right, that's right. You remember the Titans? What were you doing out there? Watching the Titans. Oh, man. You remember the ball club? Yeah, you remember old Dick Wood. Do I remember Dick Wood? Yeah, you remember Turner out there? Yeah, and old Billy Mathis. Billy Mathis? All these guys were out there. Weren't those great nights? Oh, tremendous. The 500 of us? Yeah, that's right. Were you one of the crowd? Yeah, I think you're overestimating. <laughs> yeah, I was overestimating. Yeah. Were, that, and incidentally, uh, you never saw any writing in the paper about him, did you? Nope. Not a word. And, and we'd sit out there all parts. It was like we had a little secret football club. I think they had one guy selling hot dogs, and that was about it. One guy, and he used to he used to complain near the end of the game. He had so many hot dogs left. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, I remember the sad one of the sad things about it. They were selling souvenir programs. Yeah, you remember? And, and uh, they would have these programs all out there, you know. And about nine guys in the whole season would buy souvenir programs. And I'll bet a souvenir program of the Titans right now is probably worth five hundred bucks. I bet you at least that much. I'm serious. That's a real collector's item. Now, I'm going to ask you a question. Who owned the Titans? 
Uh, Harry Wisman. That's right. You are a real fan. Uh, Harry Wisman, oh, yeah. When they had to run to the bank to collect their paycheck. That's right. You remember Harry Wismer, who was uh, the sportscaster here on WR? Yeah. And Yeah, remember that? Uh, I don't remember that well. Oh, he was a sportscaster. Sure, he'd come right. Hello, oh, ladies and gentlemen, this is Harry Wismer and the Twitch Stadium broadcasting once again another great Big Ten football game. Oh, yeah, he was a big deal. But do you do remember the Titans? Oh, yeah. Do you recall the color of their uniform? Uh, I, th- I think it was like a... I, th- I think it was dark blue. And I'm white. Sure. I believe dark blue and white. And white. Yeah, I think so. And they had these horrible dark helmets. Yeah, black, almost black yeah, helmets. Yeah, they used to get killed every week. Yeah, but they played great. I, I, a lot of stuff they did, they were so loose, it was wild. <laughs> I remember one guy kicking about a 98-yard field goal. <laughs> I mean, they were so desperate, they couldn't move the ball. He just booted the son of a gun. I never saw any kick in my life like that. And it sailed over the goalpost. And, of course, if you remember, the the, uh, uh, the 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 end zone was always empty of people except for three guys with basketball nets to catch the balls. That's right, that's right. Oh. Uh, one of Lee Grosskopf's wild passes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I'll tell you, uh, I wonder how many people know that this was the, this is the Jets. That's right. They yep. really have come a long way. They sure have. And isn't it amazing how many new fans have developed? I bet you about 98% of them don't remember who the Titans were. Uh, but they didn't even know there was a team like that. <laughs> well, now, the question I want to ask you, do you agree with some of the stuff I said tonight about the, the new Met fans? Yes, some of it. I found that from my friends, but uh, I can't say all of it, though. I know I know quite a few hardcore followers. Oh, yeah, they're hardcore followers, but the point I'm making is the new fans among the sports writers. Yeah, yeah. Have you, you can't turn two pages. Now the Mets have made the front page, even. And have you noticed also that they've stopped saying baseball is dead? <laughs> I haven't seen that in uh, God knows how well, long. Let's, let's write a letter to Gross of the, of the Post and ask him about that, you know. That must have been a hell of a funeral, right? I think it'll be, my letter will be torn up immediately. <laughs> <laughs> okay, man, hang loose. And don't, loose too, man. and don't forget, man, them Titans are going to make it yet. Sooner or later. Yeah, I'll see you. <laughs> There's a real fan. Uh, you know that was that was great. Uh, now now you now you know. You see uh, this this kind of, of course this kind of show has probably turned off all the little old ladies. You know and the and the Leonard Bernstein fans in the crowd and, and the Joan Baez crew. But uh, nevertheless, uh, I'm I'm always fascinated by this city when it's in the in the throes of a winning streak. Uh, now I'm going to I'm going to tell you what I think is going to be really fascinating to see. And if you've been following the Yankees, a lot of you guys, I'm sure, haven't been. But let me tell you this. The Yankees are, I would say, roughly 500% better than they were two years ago. This is a coming-on ball club. They got 300 hitters all of a sudden. And don't you think Roy White isn't a 300 hitter? He is. Uh, Bobby Mercer, is a, he's a good 300 hitter, too. Uh, you've got the, and don't forget Stottlemyre. You've got, a, you've got a good ball club coming up here. Wait till the day. I want to tell you, wait till the day. <laughs> wait. I'm just wait. I mean, uh, can you imagine the day when the Yankees are leading the American League and the, the Mets are leading the National League and they meet in a World Series? Can you imagine anything more traumatic to New York than a World Series that involves the Yankees and the Mets? Well, now, have you been following this thing that's been happening? Where is it? Italy? 
where they've been having the riot for about four days over the soccer game? I can I can visualize this in New York. <laughs> I I can I can visualize this. I can just see it's the seventh game of the World Series, right? Bobby Mercer is on third base after tripling off Tom Seaver, and he's the kind that could do it. He has tripled a long shot out in the deep right center, and he has stretched a double into a triple. And now the crowd is going ape. There's 89 million people are hanging on to every syllable of, of, uh, of Ralph Kiner's giving the ball game. You know, the whole place is rocking. The town is rocking. Bobby Mercer's on third base. It's now the last of the 13th inning, and we are going into the, it's the last game of the World Series. The Yankees and the Mets are battling it out. It's three games to three. And there's the windup. There's the pitch. There's a ground ball down to the... It's down to Boswell. He picks the ball up. He throws it into Grody. Grody drops the ball. Mercer slides in. He drops it again. Mercer knocks the ball out. Is he out? Is he safe? The umpire has called him safe. The Yankees win the World Series. It's a disputed decision. Everybody thinks that, that Grody tanked him out. It looked like it. Didn't it look like that to hear Mel? It looked like... He Crowds pouring out, five million people are screaming, the gunshots, and the next thing you know, the three-day riot begins. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you like that, don't you, kid? <laughs> oh, come on, admit it, you do. All right. But, uh, I, you want to hear a little of that juice harp? All right, he, he really digs that juice harp. Now, now, put that back on there. Let's try that again. This we try this. That's right.
Yeah, man, I'll tell you, I, I played that real good. That's not playing. That's not good cutting it. Uh, uh, George, will you please, uh, uh, on that same, uh, on that same disc, would you set up, uh, I'll tell you a good one. Get, uh, uh, get Lee over there and hold up. Yeah, that's the one. You just held it up the second one. The second one. No, the whiskey. Whiskey, Lee. There you go. And give me cut one side one. That's a, that's a goodie. I'll, I'll play you something. I'll play you something, man. You want to hear something good? All right. All right, let's hear that. We're going to salute all the Titan fans out there. The New York Titans. And, uh, and, uh, <laughs> all right, here we go. Come on, let's go, George. Big O, big O, big O. Let's hear it. Big, big. Real big. All right, here we go. One, two, three. <laughs> But it starts with a B. That's the kind of instrument this is to play. Large female dog. Yes, sir. Cut you all up, too. <laughs> oh, man. You know one of my favorite things to play on this? Uh, do you have... Uh, let's see, on that same side. Uh, we might as well... Because we got a crowd of appreciative listeners here in the control room here for tonight. And since the Mets are in first place, I might as well celebrate a little bit. Now, uh, do you have... Uh, Tigra Rag. Yeah, I think it's on one of those sides. Tiger Rag. It's on the... I don't think I have it here with me, though, unfortunately. Uh, how about Hindustan? That's on that same side. How about... How about... Uh, anybody want to request that there? How about Hindustan? You got that up in there, George, old boy? Oh, yeah. We're having a good night here tonight. Just, just a feeling real loose, you know, after all. Mets beat them up. Oh, here we go. All right, all right, all right. Here we go. This is a good one.
<laughs> you got to be born to this instrument. You just got to be born to it. You know, like the like the Italians. Are, that's right. We son of a gun. Why do you think I took my... I used to have a beautiful mustache, you know. I took it off for this reason. One night in concert, there was just a terrible thing happened to me. One night in concert, uh, I was playing with the jug band. And, uh, you know, for those of you, by the way, who have ever seen me work with the, with the jug band, I mean, my, you know, my crew from Fairleigh Dickinson, uh, you know that we really throw ourselves into it. And one night when I had my full, I had a full beard. It was just a terrible thing. I, I, I played the kazoo, which was fairly, you know, I did real good with the kazoo because the kazoo, you know, uh, it's a fairly, uh, a fairly clean instrument as far as beards and mustaches are concerned. But then I got, we got tremendously involved in Sugarfoot Rag, uh, on the, on the juice harp. Well, I, I, I knew something was going wrong. But I was really working. And, of course, you know I've had trouble. I had trouble for years with my beard, with the beard roaches. Uh, for, the, for those of you who've ever had a beard, you know that the, one of the big problems is a beard roach. Yeah, I had beard roaches. In fact, uh, uh, they, it, comes from, uh, it comes from caked and dried Campbell's tomato soup. And, uh, of course, I'm, you know, I, I was at that time mainlining tomato soup, a little vodka, you know, tomato soup. It was really groovy, so... Uh, and and uh, I didn't know for a long time. You ever notice how guys w- will scratch a beard all the time? They're always scratching well, beard roaches. And uh, they're microscopic. They're tiny. But, boy, are they a tough thing to get rid of. See, so I was going through that beard roach problem at the same time. And this night on Sugarfoot Rag, I was really beating it out. And this kid was standing next to me. He had this washboard bass. And, boy, we were just going. And I felt this. And I heard the crowd roar. And by God, in the second chorus, it was then that I noticed that the second chorus, I noticed the smoke coming up. Do you know that my beard was on fire from playing his juice harp? Just by sheer, just by sheer tremendous vibration. Well, I beat it out. It was very embarrassing because it was, in, it was at Princeton. It was at the university. And I beat it out, you know, and I uh, tried to pretend nothing was happening like I was smoking a very short cigar. But actually, it was a, you know, it was a near thing. My tie was on fire and a whole bit. So ever since that time, you know, I've been very careful. And I'd like to salute all you new Met fans, <laughs> you know. And, uh, and I'd like to salute all you Titan fans out there. By the way, I'll award you a brass figmagee with bronze oak leaf palm if you can tell me the name of the star quarterback of the Jets before, Ralph, before Namath came on the scene. Now that, now that shows you what kind of a fan you guys are. There was a quarterback before Namath. Huh? John Ford is a movie director. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Who? Oh, yeah. That's right. But you know everything. <laughs> oh, well, think good thoughts, crew. It's been a hard, rough night, and, uh, I mean, we've done all the bad things. We've played our, our kazoo and our juice harp. Oh, by the way, I, I don't know what the meaning of this is. I've just received a, a flyer in the mail, an ad, and it's for a new radio. You know, shortwave radio? And uh, here it is. I just got it in the ad. It says, Here, Ho Chi Minh Direct. Well, now, what the hell kind of a radio is that? Now, that may be a sick joke, but I don't know what they're doing with radio and where he's broadcasting from, but... Uh, uh, you know, radio's getting interesting, so, uh, you know, it's going to be an exciting life. Just keep thinking good thoughts, crowd. <laughs> <laughs>